Welcome to another episode of the podcast On Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. You can find On Becoming on Twitter at On Becoming Pod and Instagram at On Becoming Podcast. As always, you are heartily invited to send questions, comments, suggestions for the podcast to Unbecoming Podcast, all one word, Unbecoming Podcast at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing, I invite you to support the podcast at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast. Your support is very important to keeping the podcast going. Many thanks to those of you who've decided to support us. I ended the previous episode in the middle of my story of going up for tenure. If you've heard that episode, you may be wondering exactly how all of that turned out. If you haven't listened to that episode, here's a short recap. I received a memo from the administrative office saying that it was time for me to apply for tenure. As I've stated, in most institutions, tenure is the point where school decides whether it wants to keep you around or whether it wants to get rid of you. In other words, normally there isn't a do-over. You either have a job at the end of the year or you are now unemployed. As I mentioned, not getting tenure usually doesn't mean you can just apply for another academic job. Instead, it usually means you need to rethink your career choice and perhaps start all over again. When I left things in the previous episode, I appeared for a meeting that was supposed to be with the president and the provost. Instead, it was a meeting designed to tell me that I should wait two years to apply for tenure. I was told by the provost that I hadn't been there long enough. Since that was obviously untrue, it didn't take me very long to halt that line of reasoning. Then the provost offered the advice that, as my friend, he advised me to wait for two years. When I pressed him for a reason, he said that I hadn't published enough. When pressed by the dean as to what counted as enough, And God bless that dean, who followed up the next day with a very lengthy memo asking exactly what enough would look like. At the meeting, the provost said, well, if just one of those various publications in progress were to be accepted, that'd be enough. One thing I should probably mention here is that in the academic world, it's normal to send an article to a journal or a book manuscript to a press and wait as long as two years to hear back. For instance, a book that I ended up publishing with a much more prestigious press had been sent to two other much lesser-known presses, and both had taken about a year and a half to get back to me with rejections. When that happens, there's nothing you can do. You basically just have to wait. The outcome of such a submission usually goes as follows. Accepted as is, accepted with small changes, accepted with more substantial changes or rejected. Those are usually the exact four categories. As I mentioned before, I had sent an article to a journal about 18 months earlier and hadn't heard anything back from them. So I got on email, contacted the editor, and asked whether whoever was reviewing it might just be able to find his way or her way to do so with a bit more expediency. Within a couple of days, I got an email saying that it had been accepted with a few changes. The kind of changes you can fix in, you know, a few hours of editing. When I presented that information to the provost, he then changed what he had said before, namely that 
just one more thing in the pipeline needed to be accepted. And now he said that it needed to be published. Again, if you know anything about academic publishing, you'll know that the time from acceptance to publication can easily be many months, a year, sometimes longer. When I pressed him as to why, his response was that perhaps the journal would change its mind and the article wouldn't appear. Again, for those of you outside of the academic world, that's just not how things work. When the editor of a journal contacts you to say that something's been accepted with only minor changes required, that means it's accepted. Well, it's possible to imagine authors saying, oh, I won't make such changes, I refuse. I've never heard of anybody doing that. And it doesn't seem at all within the realm of plausibility. If you were to take that route, you'd have to start the process all over again. By the way, it is rare for an academic publication to be accepted without any request for revision whatsoever. Perhaps it's because reviewers need to show that they're really smart or they're demanding, but it's normal for some changes to be requested. Further, they often end up being more like suggestions rather than absolute demands. In the case of book manuscripts, the author is given a chance to respond to any suggestions for revision, including the response that for reasons X and Y, such revisions aren't really necessary. With book publications, it's a little different in the sense that positive reviews and even a positive review by the editor isn't quite enough. There's usually a board that needs to give a final approval. Of course, most book editors are savvy enough to know whether such approval is going to be forthcoming. So even this extra step is usually not a problem. But with journals, if the editor accepts it, it's accepted. With the revelation of the now forthcoming publication, I had been expecting that this situation would simply be solved. Instead, the demand was now that I wait one year instead of two to apply for tenure. It should be clear from the timeline that something weird was going on. I had applied for tenure because the provost's office told me it was time for me to do so. Then I was told that I was applying too early. Then I was told that I'd old and been teaching there for four years, to which I responded that the provost should take a look at my file, which showed I had been teaching in effect for seven and a half years. Then I was told that I just needed one more publication accepted. Then I was told that the acceptance of that publication wasn't good enough, and now it needed to be actually published. As it turned out, I definitely had the option of leaving my application where it was and seeing what happened. But then something really bizarre began. I was requested separately to begin weekly meetings with the provost and the president. At the first meeting with the provost, he began by saying, rumor has it on campus that you're a postmodern relativist. I was absolutely astounded that a meeting regarding my future employment would begin with a rumor. I had never heard such a rumor, so that was news to me. But why should I have been expected to respond to a mere rumor, especially one that seemed unlikely? I think I've made it clear that I'm against relativism, whether ethical or aesthetic. Just to be clear, I think the idea that there are people who are relativists is largely an invention by conservatives. Everyone has some kind of ethical standards, even if they're different from yours or mine. As I used to say to students, if you find someone claiming to be a relativist, try taking his laptop and see how it goes. 
If the response is, hey, dude, you can't do that, he's not a relativist. And that began what turned out to be a series of meetings with the provost. One of the difficulties with the provost was that he assumed that whatever your specialty was, English, physics, history, he knew more about it than you did. What was particularly fascinating that even though he had no theological education and very little sophistication regarding theological and biblical matters, he had absolutely no problem telling people who taught theology and biblical texts that they were wrong and he was right. We probably had about six or seven meetings in which I was quizzed on all kinds of things. The meetings with the president were at least more humane, and he was also smart enough to know that he didn't know everything. Those meetings with the president were always scheduled for Friday afternoon, and they usually ended up with something along the lines of, I think we need to keep meeting. It wasn't a great way to start a weekend. But one day, something really important happened. The president asked me if I knew why we were having these meetings. I said, uh, I don't know. Uh, the provost mentioned something about publishing. His response, this has absolutely nothing to do with publishing. It has to do with whether I feel comfortable recommending that you continue to teach here. So, I finally had the truth. And it was what I had suspected all along. Although I taught a wide variety of philosophers, people from Kant and Hegel to Husserl, Heidegger and Gadamer, I also taught people like Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, and Friedrich Nietzsche, not exactly philosophers loved by evangelicals. And there was an argument I made to the president that I think made a huge difference. I pointed out that evangelicals often don't get fair treatment by the secular press, and that it would be the height of hypocrisy to complain about unfair treatment if we, or particularly I, taught any of these figures in a dismissive or unfair way. The way I'd left things with the provost was that I would decide at the last minute whether to let my tenure case go forward. Even though it was just prior to 9 a.m., it felt like high noon as the two of us walked toward one another on a deserted street. When I said that I had decided to continue with my bid for tenure, I got a look that conveyed both shock and anger that I would dare to go against him. That afternoon, I got a phone call from him saying that the committee had voted in my favor, though he made a point of telling me that the decision was not unanimous. I'm sure that he did his best at the meeting to dissuade colleagues for voting for me, but I also knew that the faculty committee's didn't respond very well to pressure from the administration. For quite a while after that, things went fairly normally. One of the things I discovered in the tenure process was that many students had reported various things I had said to the administration. I'm sure that continued, for periodically I got called into the principal's office, as I used to call it, to be questioned about things that I'd said. For instance, I went to a small dinner hosted by a friend, she had invited several people, including two people from my church. The conversation was wide-ranging and touched on a number of sensitive topics. Sometime after that, I received an email from the administration. Someone at the party compiled a list of things she thought I had said. And then she sent it to the administration. It's probably helpful to mention that the two people from the church were a couple who had started out very conservative in their views, 
but it gradually moved to what evangelicals would consider a very liberal point of view, which meant that our conversation had much to do with conservative versus liberal points of disagreement. So once again, I had to go before the provost and explain what I had or hadn't said. Somehow that all worked out. But then I invited a guy named Slavoj Žižek to speak on campus. If you know anything about Žižek, you'll know he's the closest thing in the academic world to a rock star. I was really lucky to be able to land such a prominent speaker. The location where we held the lecture was huge, but it was standing room only. People had driven, in some cases, many hours to attend the talk. Someone, frankly a student that I knew, someone who should have known better, had written an article for the school newspaper in advance that had been titled something like Atheist to Speak on Marxism, or maybe it was Marxist to Speak on Atheism. Before the talk, a colleague and I had held a brief meeting to explain Zizek's views. Alas, the student who wrote the article didn't attend the meeting. Just to be clear, Zizek actually is both an atheist and a Marxist, though he's co-written things with the theologian John Milbank. I think the expectation was that I was bringing someone to campus to convert students to atheism or Marxism or, or maybe both. But Zizek had never written anything against Christianity and said he was fascinated and continues to be fascinated by it, even though his ideas about Christianity are not exactly what you'd call orthodox. But just to be safe, I had asked my mother to attend the talk so she could let me know if she heard something that the administration wouldn't like. Her response after the talk, nah, he, he didn't say anything that was a problem. So I was called in before the talk and then after the talk, in both cases to explain why I had invited this person. Long before cancel culture became a thing, evangelicals had long canceled anyone who might lead someone astray. But I argued, we claim that this is a liberal arts college, not a Bible college. Surely there is room for someone to give a talk who very much likes Christianity and has no desire to destroy anyone's faith. A few years later, I was able to get Cornell West to speak. At that point, West was one of those speakers who could easily charge thirty dollars to $40,000 for a one-hour talk. Because he is Christian and he knew something about Wheaton, he agreed to speak for only a fraction of that amount. That drew another standing room only crowd. But I soon received an email from an older white man. Yes, in this case, you actually need all three of those descriptors that expressed concern that I had invited someone like West who talked about racism and how it went against the, the grain of what Jesus had taught. The email began by questioning my choice of speakers, but it soon descended into language describing me as stupid, etc., etc. By the way, at that same time, the president sent me a, a follow-up email, because this was a friend of his, in which he insisted that I needed to respond to this person. I don't remember exactly what I wrote in response, except to say that West was a brother in Christ and had something to say that people in our community needed to hear. I'm sure I also mentioned the liberal arts college part, which, at least as I saw it, meant that inviting people to speak with whom some might disagree was part of the college's mission.
But there's another story here that connects to what I've been saying. I've mentioned previously that I had begun attending an Episcopal church as an undergraduate. That continued during my teaching years. One year, I was invited to serve as the visiting professor at the school in Belgium, where I had studied. I considered it a great honor, and I was delighted to return to a place that in many ways felt like home. Perhaps it's because I moved so many times in my life, particularly as a child, living in many parts of the U.S. and now in three different countries, that Belgians somehow started to feel like home. While there, I attended a very small Anglican church in the British, not the American sense of the term Anglican. When I say small, I mean 15 to 20 people. That was a good night. The church lacked a priest, and they were looking for someone who could pastor the church but also potentially teach at the university. I was on the search committee, and we kept talking about what we intended for the priest to do. During one of our meetings, it suddenly dawned on me that I fit the description and that I had the distinct sense that this might be exactly what I should do with the rest of my life. Since I was only in Belgium for that year, it didn't work out to get things in place in time. But upon returning to the States, I mentioned this to the rector of my church, who encouraged me to pursue ordination. We had many long talks about what this would involve, and it seemed like something that might be right for me. That led to the formation of what is called a discernment committee, in which a group of parishioners from the church would meet with a potential candidate for at least six months to decide whether they heard such a call to the ministry. Years later, when I started telling the story and I got to the committee part, someone spoke up and said, that sounds like a formula for abuse. I assured her that not only was she right about the formula part, but that had been my experience. To be clear, I knew something about this process from watching someone I know go through it, and then from getting to know many seminarians who had gone through the same process. One of the seminarians said that it had taken three tries, that is, with three different committees at three different churches, to get to the place where he could move forward. Another person actually found it necessary to switch to a different diocese to make it work. That means he had to move somewhere else. You might think that those meetings with the provost would go down as the worst meetings of my life, but I think this turned out to be even worse. For these meetings consisted of me talking about what I thought was a call to the ministry, why I thought I was qualified, and many deeply personal questions. In our first meeting, someone on the committee said that she had never been on such a committee and she really didn't understand what she was supposed to do. That didn't bode well, as far as I could tell. At every single meeting, she asked me to describe my sense of calling. In other words, I had to say the same thing over and over. I still don't think she got it. At one point, I admitted to the group that I didn't have a sense that God loved me. Since I wanted honesty, I thought, I should be honest. They assured me that indeed God did love me. But then it dawned on me that my lack of feeling God's love probably had more to do with the fact that this group of people were treating me coldly, radiating hatred rather than love. This process went on for about seven or eight months. At the conclusion, I received a letter that was written in such strange language that I didn't know exactly what to make of it. 
That they didn't think I should be a priest was evident enough. But the reasoning part was so vague that it was almost impossible to follow. The best I could conclude was that they thought I hadn't told them enough about my life, when I had the impression that my privacy had been deeply violated. In a truly important sense, meeting with this committee did result in discernment. Within 24 hours of receiving the letter, I felt that my faith had completely vanished. Here's a way of explaining this. I had long come to the place where I knew evangelicals couldn't be trusted, which is to say that I'd lost any faith I had with them a long time ago. But I thought that Episcopalians were at least somewhat different. That experience showed me that such a belief was naive. Given that the bulk of my training has been in philosophy with a good deal of theology along the way, you might wonder why it was an experience that changed my mind. However, as I've mentioned many times, the way we know the world is first and foremost intuitive. What we call the rational brain, the rational part of the brain, the left brain, the left hemisphere, is evolutionarily speaking a very late development. Put otherwise, we think that we make our decisions in a fully rational way by considering evidence and using logic. As I've already said, back 150 years ago, Nietzsche had pointed out that this conception of human reasoning got things backwards. In other words, the things to which we are most committed, the people we love, the ideas or things we care about, our religious beliefs, our political beliefs, are largely not adopted because of what is going on in the neocortex. They are adopted largely because of our intuitive brain, the limbic system. It's a little bit more complicated than that, of course, because even the reasoning of the neocortex is fully dependent upon what we know or believe by way of intuition, which means that intuition is our most fundamental way of relating to the world. That also explains why rational arguments for, say, why you should or you should not support a certain politician usually are worse than useless. Such a discussion presumes that choices like this are made with the neocortex, logically and rationally. But everything we now know about neuroscience tells us that this is simply incorrect. To make this even more complicated, the kinds of moral or religious or political judgments we make in the intuitive part of our brain, the right hemisphere, are ones that are unknown to the left hemisphere. The left hemisphere has zero access to what the right hemisphere is actually thinking. At best, it can make educated guesses. In other words, the best the left brain can do is to provide some justification for something the right brain has already decided. As far as I can tell, most philosophers have not come to realize how things actually work, which means they're still writing as if the neocortex the left brain, was in charge. Perhaps some of you listening have had the experience of getting to the place where much of what you've believed is suddenly put into question. I suspect that what happened to me suddenly had been a long time in the making. Again, you might think, well, he's a philosopher, so any changes of view would be coming from his neocortex. But that's just not how it works. 
I've had people say, well, the fact that Christians don't live up to the teachings of Jesus doesn't discredit those teachings. And I think that's entirely correct. I'm still a fan of Jesus' teachings. But I can't live with such a huge disconnect between what Christians do and what Jesus says they should do. As you can imagine, this topic would require at least an episode and probably a series. Philosophers have made the point that you can't will yourself to believe something that you consider to be false. In other words, our beliefs are not nearly as freely chosen as we think they are. At some point along the way, I ended up having lunch with a long-term friend in which I discussed my questions, my lack of belief, and also my sexuality. What I expected was that he would be able to empathize with my struggles. Instead, he decided to report me to the college administration, which led to me getting fired and to him becoming the dean of theology and humanities. It was my mistake, thinking I could trust an evangelical. My firing began when I was in Australia doing research. I got this strange email from the provost in which he said something urgent had come up and we needed to talk. Given the time difference, we had to schedule a call. As that call began, he said he'd be sending and reading from an email. It was a document that clearly had been assembled with help from a lawyer, though some of the charges against me were laughable. I was admonished to return to the U.S. as soon as possible so that we could work things out. Changing an expensive flight at the last minute wasn't easy or cheap. And once I returned, I realized that there really was no desire to work out anything. I was told that I would have no chance to defend myself whatsoever and that I could either resign or be fired. My lawyer thought I should sue. Since the college was located in a state in which firing someone on the basis of sexual orientation was illegal, I would have followed that route. But when I outlined that to my mother, she burst into tears and said she'd have to move. That was the point where I should have said, sorry, Mom, but I need to do the right thing and sue. My lawyer was confident that we would have won the case, but because it involved the right of religious schools to fire or not hire people from the LGBTQ plus community, it likely would have gone to the Supreme Court. I'm sorry today that I didn't sue, but I should also point out that that whole ordeal took a huge emotional toll on me. It was particularly galling that meetings with the provost began with him praying an ever so pious prayer, expressing concerns for me. My lawyer, a Christian by the way, said that he had never seen anyone in his practice treated so poorly. The business people he had represented had been treated far more humanely than the treatment I was getting from the evangelical college. But then I pointed out something important to him. If you think you're on God's side, that you in effect speak for God, you can justify just about anything. Dostoevsky got it wrong when he says that without God, everything is permissible. It's exactly the opposite. If you believe you are acting on the part of God, then nothing is impermissible, especially if you're dealing with the demonized other, which is what most evangelicals think of us queer folks. And now perhaps you understand why I've told this story under the category 
the dispensing of existence. I wasn't killed, but losing an academic job when you're already far into your career makes things pretty difficult. That was back in 2014, and I haven't had a permanent academic position since then, and I don't expect that will change. Perhaps now you're expecting that my story is going to have some deep and wonderful redemptive theme to it that's going to emerge. That's something that Christians tend to expect. Unfortunately, life doesn't necessarily work out that way. Life doesn't necessarily have redemptive aspects to it. It might, but it might not. Given that I was out of a job, I needed to sell my house as soon as possible. You can't make mortgage payments when you're making zero. That was the house I had loved, but that time was over. Once that was done, I lived with a former student who had kindly, out of the blue, offered to let me stay. But here's one small redemptive thing. In order to earn some money, I put together a video of me playing the piano. I'd played professionally on the side for many years, though that had dropped off when I started publishing a lot of books and articles. There are only so many hours in a day. But I moved to Chicago and started playing. I wasn't earning a lot, you know, it's the life of the musician, but it was enough to pay the bills. I had always wanted to do more professional playing, and this turned out to be my opportunity. In one sense, I'm glad that possibility emerged, since it took my playing to an entirely different level. While I was busy being a professional musician, I was also in contact with someone who had been a close friend during my undergraduate days. He had recently been appointed to head up an agency that funded projects in philosophy and theology, particularly ones that brought the two together. We started talking about a particular project that possibly could be funded by the foundation. The process was extremely chaotic. To this day, I still don't know if he was merely incompetent or if he just had too many things to oversee. One less than positive sign, something that I didn't really think about at first, was that he himself had not published much of anything, perhaps even nothing. By that point in my career, I had published 12 books and about 80 academic articles. So it felt odd to be judged and having one's fate decided by someone who hadn't accomplished much at all academically. Still, it led to a first grant that, for reasons which would be difficult to explain succinctly, moved me to L.A. If you follow the podcast, you'll know that I lived there as a child, and I'd been back to visit many times. The house I'd lived in while teaching at the college was actually my dream house. I had wanted to live there from back in my undergraduate days. But it was pretty big, and moving there required a great deal of downsizing. A conservative estimate is that about half of the furniture was sold to those moving into the house or through a consignment shop. I also pared down my books from probably 5,000 to more like 4,000 or 3,500. If you're a bibliophile, you'll know that such paring down, however necessary, is it's a painful process. I'd been in L.A. for a couple of months when I came across an article written by the husband of a couple that had moved without much prior thought from New York City to L.A. I stopped dead in my tracks when I read the following sentence. Nobody told us that L.A. was the loneliest city in the world. Yes, the traffic in L.A. is terrible. But people don't talk much about how difficult it is to make friends there. It's a one-industry town, movies and TV. 
When people discover that you don't work in the industry, they usually lose interest in getting to know you. After an accident on the 5, that's California speak, most people would say Highway 5, but that's not how Californians talk. After that accident, I was looking for a new car. A salesperson I spoke to related to my situation very well. She pointed out that people in New York City would make it plain to you if they were interested in being friends or even casual acquaintances. That had been my experience as a New Yorker. But people from L.A. weren't so direct. Instead, if you suggested getting together for coffee, you'd often get something vague like, let's try and do that. A New Yorker who's interested in getting together is likely to take out his or her calendar to find a time. I soon learned that if someone in L.A. said something like, let me check my calendar and get back to you, that meant I have no interest in seeing you. Since this is rated a non-explicit podcast, I can't say what it really meant, but you can probably guess. Despite all my questions about religion, God, theology, etc., I had attended a wonderful, inclusive Episcopal church in Chicago, and now found something even better. All Saints Episcopal Beverly Hills. They had a great set of priests, and I was soon involved in their Wednesday gatherings, which consisted of a meal followed by a discussion. Someone in the church loved to cook and was really good at it, and we were served lovely meals that cost seven bucks. What I really appreciated was the fact that the clergy soon realized that I knew a little bit about theology, and they would frequently give me the opportunity to comment on certain matters under discussion. At first, I was really worried since I thought people might think, oh, he's talking too much. But then people started to comment to me privately that they really enjoyed hearing from me. A small group of the church actually asked me to dinner and said, we just want to hear you talk. As far as redemptive moments go, that was certainly one of them. I am truly grateful to both the staff and the parishioners at All Saints. To be honest, meeting them and being part of that community was the high point of my time in L.A. Just as an aside, I shared my view of how many people in L.A. are only interested in you if you work in the industry, and that opened up a floodgate on the subject. I clearly wasn't the only one who had had this experience. As the academic year drew to a close, it became an open question of what would come next. Initially, it seemed like the best option was teaching a bunch of courses and being paid per course, which means, of course, very little money, certainly not enough to live on in L.A. But then a new opportunity appeared. There was a group of scholars in Scotland that were funded by the same agency. So far, they had only invited analytic philosophers to be part of their discussion. But there was interest in getting someone who worked in continental philosophy to be involved in the conversation, and it turns out that that was a very genuine interest. But the grant being offered was only for eight months. So I decided to put all my stuff in storage and move to Scotland. I'd lived in Europe, but had never lived in the UK, which some people consider to be Europe, but after Brexit, my view is that it's something between the US and Europe. After all, I had lived in Belgium, and I knew many people from the UK who had worked for the EU. The UK is a bit kinder and perhaps gentler than the US, but it's just not the same. European countries do far more to support people in need than does the UK, and certainly more than the US. Being part of the EU is an economic relationship, to be sure, 
but it's also kind of a commitment to something like solidarity with your neighbors. The people in Scotland voted overwhelmingly to remain part of the EU, 68% in favor. And I hope that Scotland soon achieves independence and rejoins the EU. For Scotland embodies in so many ways that concern for the community that I had encountered when I lived in Belgium and Germany. And Scotland is, at least from my point of view, a model of inclusivity. But not completely. Not long after arriving in Scotland, I discovered that my eight-month grant had become a 24-month grant. That was great news. But there was also some troubling news. Not long after I arrived, a position in the area of theology and the arts was advertised. For those of you who know anything about what I've published, you realize that I've been working in this area for many years. Not long before I arrived, I had published a book on liturgy and the arts. Further, many of my publications were either explicitly religious or theological, or else implicitly so. So I applied for the position. Soon afterward, however, I learned that my application had not been considered. And here we need a little bit of terminology. Everyone's heard of the shortlist for a job. In Scotland, they also have the term long list. The people who are on the long list are those who are thought to be qualified to be considered for the job. I didn't make it to the long list. That was, to say the least, very troubling. How was I not even qualified to be considered for a position? As it turns out, they brought in some candidates that, as one of my colleagues said, I don't see how any of these people can be hired. One obvious possibility was the same one from my previous job, my sexual orientation. As it turns out, the head of the Divinity School was a Baptist minister who had made it plain that he was convinced that the Bible taught that people like me were bad. The deputy head of school had also made her views on homosexuality very clear to various people. She wasn't in favor. That realization resulted in me instigating an investigation of the matter. Just in case you don't know, most of the time such investigations go nowhere. The people who are responsible deny responsibility, the report comes back all whitewashed, and people think, see, there's no problem. And that's exactly what happened in this case. However, somehow a reporter from the Times of London got wind of what was going on. He wrote a piece that appeared in the Sunday edition back in June 2020. If you want to look for it, it starts with the title, Gay Theologian Bruce Ellis Benson. As you might imagine, I wondered, how does this happen twice? But the reality is that the theology department, or divinity school, as, as it was actually called at this university, caters largely to American evangelicals. About 80% of their graduate students are American evangelicals who are drawn to the school because it's viewed as safe and non-threatening. For instance, when I arrived, two of my former students were working on their PhDs there. No wonder, then, that the school simply couldn't imagine hiring someone who was part of the LGBTQ plus community, even though the university was given an award in 2013 for being, and I'm not making this up, the most LGBT-friendly educational organization in Scotland. One can only imagine that the others must be truly dreadful. Or, as I've discovered, one of the problems with the abuse of people like me, yes, I use the word abuse, is that it can be done all the while maintaining that the institution is inclusive, welcoming, open, etc. 
As I often say, I long for the good old days when people who were racist and homophobic spoke up and aired their views. It wasn't that I wanted to hear such language, but I'm so tired of living in a world in which people are fearful of saying racist and homophobic things, all the while holding just as firmly to their racist and homophobic views. There was a kind of raw honesty in the old days, even if what they were honest about was truly bad. Let me mention just one additional interesting item. The foundation that had been funding me decided to expand and hired someone new. That person was to oversee my next grant. But as I soon discovered, that person had made his homophobic views very clear to his friends. When I brought this up with the head of the funding agency, he went into vehement denial mode. Oh, no, the organization was not homophobic. Was it just that he was too stupid to realize what was going on? The person he had hired was one of those people who are extremely rude and arrogant. I've worked with arrogant people before, but most of them have some basis for their arrogance. Like, they've published a lot, or they're famous, or they're important in some way. Somehow my former friend just didn't understand that he had hired a real jerk. So perhaps he didn't understand that he had hired a true homophobe. Of course, it could have just been the standard boilerplate. We're open and inclusive stuff. In any case, my grant was not renewed. My existence had been dispensed with. That's all for this episode. I'm Dr. Bruce Alice Benson. Please join us next week. <laughs>